The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Everybody, everybody who's running, walking on a treadmill, walking your dog, being at the office and pretending like you're not listening to a podcast. We are so happy to have every single one of you joining us for this episode of the Main Street Vegan Program. And I am particularly happy that you're here because I am feeling really lonely. We just finished the 13th Main Street Vegan Academy course, which was absolutely wonderful. We had a dozen amazing students from all over the place. We had somebody from Panama, from Vancouver, BC, from Arizona, and all around. And I just left them at their graduation luncheon at Candle Cafe West, and I'm back here now. The dog is out with a dog walker. My husband is still visiting his mom in Kansas, and what a great gift to get to talk with you. So thank you so much for spending this time with me and with my wonderful guests. So my first guest is Justin Van Cleek, and Justin is the co-editor of one of my favorite books right now. It's called Letters to a New Vegan. You know how some books are so appealing just by how they look and how you can hold them in your hand. This is a little book with a powerful, powerful message. Letters to a New Vegan is based on the idea of the classic book Letters to a Young Poet by Maria von Rilke. The idea is, I've been there, I've been doing this, and now I'm going to help you on your journey, on your process. In Letters to a New Vegan, there are a couple dozen contributors, and some of them you've heard of. Um, Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of, of PETA. Uh, Demetrius Bagley, who's the producer of the documentary Vegucated. Uh, I'm in there with a letter to the new vegans. And a lot of the other people are less well-known, but their information, their inspiration, their connection to people who are just starting out on this path is so exquisite. Now, Justin has a PhD in English and is a freelance writer who's written for our Hen House, Vegan Publishers, Project Intersect, and others. He and his wife, Rosemary, founded the Triangle Chance for All, which runs a micro-sanctuary 
for rescued farm animals and promotes ethical veganism as well as the micro-sanctuary movement, which inspires others to use what resources they can to provide sanctuary to farmed animals in need. Welcome, Justin. Are you here? Okay. Oh, just we're having a little bit of technical stuff. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what has happened this week. I want to give you an update, speaking of sanctuary, on the Harlem Kitties. I mentioned last week that there is a family of three lovely bonded kitty sisters. Their mom was killed, and they've grown up together. And they live on a lot in Harlem, And a wonderful uh, rescuer named Ilsa Singer has been taking care of them. And she's made sure that they've been spayed and fed and vaccinated and all that. But now their home is going to become a construction site. So a lot of people have been helping Ilsa to raise the money that she needs to get these kitties to a permanent home, a wonderful rural sanctuary. And I have to say, thanks to all of you, that has just gone gangbusters. There is enough raised for two of the kitties to go to the sanctuary. Well, we sure can't leave the third one out in the cold and the heat and the rain. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash kitty sisters, um, you can help out with that. You know, sometimes just the tiniest thing for somebody is just a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So thanks for your help on that, going backwards and going forwards. Now let me just check with the tech people. I believe we now have Justin on the line. Are you with us, Justin? Yes, I am. I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) Can you hear me okay? Not a word. I hear you beautifully. So where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm calling in from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is where I live. Wonderful. I love North Carolina. I was down there for the Charlotte Veg Fest and just had the best time. We went to a Yeah, it's a great it's a great place. It really yeah, it's, is. It's and pretty so, hot and humid down here. It's pretty hot and humid down here right now, but <laughs> otherwise uh, it's pretty nice. I think it's pretty hot and humid most places. So tell us a little <laughs> bit of the history of, of Letters to a New Vegan. How did the idea sprout? Sure, yeah. So um, the, the idea started um, with my co-editor, Melissa, who um, she started the project and uh, was, you know, kind of going on her experience as a vegan. And uh, she is, like me, um, kind of a student of literature and uh, uh, was very familiar with uh, uh, Rilke's um, letters to a young poet. And she got the idea for something similar to new vegans who, you know, as I'm sure we all know, uh, when you start, when you become vegan, it's all, it is oftentimes a pretty rough transition. And uh, one of the biggest things that helps with that is having a very strong community of um, fellow vegans whom you can, you know, ask questions to and whom you can commiserate with and just have as a general support network. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people who go vegan and then, and then kind of fall off the bandwagon, a lot of times, you know, lack of social support is a big part of that. So, um, you know, the idea was was to solicit letters from current vegans, from longtime vegans of of all different uh, walks of life, to just kind of get their perspective on being vegan as a way to potentially, um, you know, inform and inspire people who were already transitioned to being a new vegan or even potentially contemplating doing so. And and we do want to do a shout out to Melissa Tedro because uh, how wonderful that that idea came to her. Um, and I know that you said that uh, Martin Rowe at, at Lantern Books was telling you that the book is so new, he can't really give you a report on exactly how it's doing. But here's what I think. They say uh-huh. that the two most stolen books from public libraries are the Holy Bible and the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book. Both are life-saving volumes. And I can only tell you that in my home and my bookshelf, the most stolen book is Letters to a New Vegan. Uh, So if that tells you anything, you're in very good company. So that sounds like a good barometer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. That's, That's what we've got to go on until you get the first royalty report in. So tell me about some of the letters or some quotations that really stand out for you. Sure. Yeah. Oh no, there were just so many. Um, and along the way, uh, the the progress of edit, the process of editing the book took well over a year. Um, once I joined on, so Melissa and I became acquainted through an appearance I made on um, Our Hen House on their podcast, and uh, it was you know pr- pretty serendipitous. And I 
got in touch with Melissa and actually contributed a letter to the uh, you know to the pool of, of contributors early in the editorial process. And then uh, as Melissa and I kind of got to know each other a little bit more, she asked me to join on as an editor. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I came into the project. Um, I'm a you know, a Johnny come lately, I guess. <laughs> And uh, but it was lots of fun working with Melissa. Um, she's a, a wonderful person, and um, you know I, I really got a lot out of, out of the editorial experience with her. So um, we put out the call for contribution, you know, contributions to the to the anthology, and we were just overwhelmed with the response. Um, you know, like any project, when you first put out a you know a call for support or submissions, it's kind of hard to gauge what the response will be. Um, and it was just phenomenal. So we had no real idea what the book was going to look like at the end early on. Um, we kind of wanted that to develop organically. And so uh, we just kept getting contributions. And, you know, I think in the end we got over 130 submissions for the book. And we went through and we did an editorial pass on all of them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're trying to, like I said, kind of feel our way through what people were writing in order to, to let the book develop organically from that. And um, what we ended up doing was uh, uh, reaching a place where we felt like the, the best way to really kind of pack a powerful punch with the book and, and uh, you know, offer something that people would want to return to frequently was to make it very uh, compact, something that could travel with you, something that, you know, you could become very intimate with um, without being kind of overwhelmed by the amount of, of content that was there. And so that's how we kind of, uh, came into the idea of having this very small book that you could fit in your pocket and had, you know, a number of, like, very, you know, intimate letters that you could kind of become friends with. And so um, it was really fascinating just the, the diversity of the, the people who contributed. Um, you know, people from young, I mean, I think we had several contributions from a family who had, you know, vegan children who were as young as, like, six uh, who were contributing letters. And then it went all the way up to you know, um, older vegans who had been doing it for many years or also some vegans who um, were, you know, older but had just recently transitioned to vegan veganism and recognized, you know, that after living a life, uh, you know, harming animals that it was time for a change. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I it was really amazing to see how many different people contributed and, uh, you know, some of my, my favorite letters. Um, I, I don't, do not want to name names because they're all really, really fantastic in their own ways, but... You know, uh, like just to give one example, one of the contributors, uh, Jacqueline Moore, um, she is an activist and a writer living out um, in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, she's someone whom since doing the volume I've connected with, I've collaborated her on, uh, on a number of projects. Um, and, you know, she's doing amazing things with uh, her uh, zine called Project Intersect. Um, that's doing really fantastic work on, on intersectionality and veganism. And um, so, you know, each of the, the individual authors in the collection has, uh, you know, his or her own story. And uh, that, that, you know, personal aspect of it, I think, is what really makes the book unique and also makes it something that um, new vegans, I believe, will, you know, very easily connect with and find very, um, very rewarding and nourishing for them as they, you know, begin and continue their journey on the vegan path. I think it's even good for people who have been vegan a long time. I love the book. I've been vegan for now almost 32 years. And I think it's almost like sometimes I'll read a young adult novel and really like it. And I haven't been a young adult in a really long time, except I was one <laughs> and I was a new vegan. And so I think right. there's really something there for everybody. I know that part of the proceeds are benefiting several nonprofits. Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, very, very early on, I mean, we we tried not to get ahead of ourselves too much when, when you know, going through the editorial process of the book. We just spent so many hours reading letters and, you know, working on organization and that sort of thing. So, uh, But we, we we both felt very strongly that we wanted the royalties uh, of the book that would otherwise go to us as, as you know, editors and authors um, to, uh, to, to go to benefit vegan organizations and, you know, um, and also, you know, organizations that worked with, uh, with animals. Um, so we kind of talked amongst ourselves and, you know, tried to, to, to think about some organizations that we really liked that we thought we were doing very important work, um, you know, for veganism and for, for animals. Um, and so the, we chose five organizations, um, to, to split up the royalties amongst and so uh, those are our in-house, um, of course, well, because, you know, Melissa and I <laughs> kind of got to uh, met each other through that, and, and our in-house does, does great stuff. Um, another one is Food Empowerment Project. Um, so they do really great work on food justice and, um, 
you know, a lot of really important issues. Uh, then also a well-fed world. Um, they're kind of an international hunger relief organization that does, um, you know, all plant-based hunger relief. They, they're very supportive of other projects and um, organizations. Um, and I've, I've had a relationship with them for a number of years, and I'm just continually amazed by their work. Um, and uh, also joined them as a, an advisor uh, recently, which was very exciting. Uh, and then um, along with, with those three, um, we chose two sanctuaries, um, uh, one of whom was Peaceful Prairie, which is a, a, a big sanctuary out in uh, Colorado that um, I, I love their, what they do because they, you know, they have they're a big sanctuary, but they're very, very um, uh, strong advocates of ethical veganism, um, and they, they do fantastic work connecting you know, the, the rescue and the sanctuary work that they, they do with uh, larger issues um, and ethics, which I, I really love. And then the last organization is actually uh, Triangle Chance for All, which is the organization that uh, my wife Rosemary and I founded um, outside of Chapel Hill. So uh, Triangle Chance for All, uh, we run a small micro-sanctuary for rescued uh, farmed animals, um, particularly chickens. Um, and we, we live on about, a, you know, about three acres um, outside of Chapel Hill, and our, our sanctuary is you know, maybe a few thousand square feet. It's not not what you typically think of with uh, when you talk about sanctuary. But um, you know, we work a lot with local shelters uh, to rescue farmed animals and either place ones we we cannot keep permanently or um, you know have a permanent residence. And um, you know, we so micro sanctuary is something that we kind of developed through our work with TCA and are, are kind of launching that. We have launched that as a separate project. But um, so part of the proceeds as well will be going to. Triangle Chance for All, which is, um, you know, also a 501c3 nonprofit like the other other organizations. Well, I'm so glad you talked about that because I wanted to know what a micro sanctuary is and how small you have to be to be a micro sanctuary. <laughs> I love that idea, and especially that you're focusing on chickens. Yesterday, Bruce oh, Friedrich uh, took the train up from D.C. to teach the uh, animal rights and animal law class for Main Street Vegan Academy. And as long as I've been in this, there were things about chickens that I didn't know. He was saying that broiler chickens are bred to grow so rapidly, and I knew that, but I didn't know how rapidly until he said, and he quoted some expert who'd come up with this figure, that if a baby chick designed to be eaten for for meat was a human, that baby human would weigh 660 pounds at the age of two months old. Yeah, so. yeah, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, a couple of questions there. So, micro sanctuary. Um, what micro sanctuary really is about at its heart is um, individual vegans using whatever resources they have where they're at right now to rescue farmed animals. Um, so, when we think about sanctuary, we typically think about you know a, a big farm like farm sanctuary or Woodstock um, or the Gentle Barn that you you know has dozens and dozens, sometimes even hundreds of acres, hundreds of animals, you know, in a very large operating budget. Um, and micro-sanctuary is really about, um, you know, a very grassroots, like, populist approach to doing sanctuary, which is, you know, one person in a, in a you know, a townhouse with a small backyard rescuing a couple of chickens and making them members of the family. Um, and so it's really very much about taking that idea of sanctuary, which is, you know, creating a safe space for rescued animals who have, you know, been exploited all of their lives um, and, and treating them with respect, giving them proper levels of vet care, and, you know, like I said, developing those relationships that are very much about family um, oh. and not just about, you know, kind of putting them out in the, in the field and letting them do the thing, but, all, you know, relating them to, to relating to them the same way that we would traditionally associate uh, companion animals. Oh, and it's, it's really great that, you know, you ask those questions about chickens because even amongst vegans, I think we tend to think of farmed animals as being kind of these other animals that live out in the fields and we occasionally interact with them if we, you know, drive by a farm or if we go to a, farm, a, a sanctuary. But in reality, and I can tell you this from experience, um, farmed animals are, are wonderful companions. Um, we love nothing more than to have, you know, some of the chickens cuddling up with us up on the couch at night. Uh, at our micro sanctuary, you know, and, and the relationships that, that you can build with them are, you know, as rich as they would be with a dog or a cat. Um, they have fantastic personalities. They're, they're super intelligent and they, um, they're just fascinating. So we fell in love with chickens immediately. And that is actually kind of what led us to, to start our sanctuary. Um, and so, you know, really what we want to do with micro sanctuaries is to help others who have already been doing that rescue, but have felt like they're just kind of, you know, individuals on their own doing doing this rescue that not many other vegans do. 
um, or people who are interested in potentially operating a sanctuary one day but have no clue how to get from where they are now to, you know, hundreds of acres and hundreds of thousands of dollars um, that, that are required to operate a large sanctuary. And um, it's great because, you know, as we've been doing this, we've been connecting with people who have already been doing this sort of rescue. And, you know, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is exactly what I'm doing. And they take a lot of pride and uh, empowerment from being able to, to self-identify as a micro-sanctuary. Um, and I think that having that as something that they can, you know, feel like they're a part of is also very much like legitimizing of what they do. And, uh, you know, I know from experience uh, spending most of my t- free time uh, connect, collaborating and connecting with other sanctuaries and micro-sanctuary uh, folks is that, um, you know, the, the level of, of care and the, des- the desire to, to, to treat these, these animals with, um, you know, as much love and affection and, and the medical attention as possible is something that's really great because, um, you know, it, it really uh, raises the level of care that many of these animals are getting. Oh, um, that's also, wonderful. You know, Justin, much, I'm yeah. sorry I have to stop yeah. you. Forgive me because um, we have uh-huh. other guests waiting. But my goodness, thank you so much for all you do. So do check out um, Justin's work, Triangle Chance for All and the Micro Sanctuary Movement. And get yourself not a copy of Letters to a New Vegan, <laughs> but a handful of copies of Letters to a New Vegan. It's very small. It's very inexpensive. And this is something that you can hand out. You can tie a little ribbon. I gave a copy yesterday to somebody who had a birthday. Uh, very proudly and happily did that. Thank you so much, Justin Van Cleek, for your wonderful work in the world. And we will be back with a couple of amazing guests who are going to teach us a four-leaf plan for getting super healthy. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan Show. And if you have questions for our guests or for me, give us a call, 888 888- 
We would be very happy to have you join the conversation if you happen to be listening live on some Wednesday afternoon in August. It is my pleasure to bring back to the show Jay Morris Hicks. I don't often bring people back a second time, but you know how I first heard about Jim Hicks was from Mary Lou Henner, who said, I almost never have anybody on a second time. I've had him on four times. He's such a fabulous guest. And so today, uh, Jay Morris Hicks has joined with Dr. Carrie Graff, and they have written the most enticing book. I find it so interesting that the two books we're talking about today are both small, both short chapters, very, very appealing, and both incredibly helpful. So the book that we're going to be discussing now is called The Four-Leaf Guide to Vibrant Health. And everybody knows if it's got four leaves that it's lucky. So I'll tell you just a tiny bit about the authors. J. Morris Hicks hails from Pennsylvania. From uh, I'm sorry, I had you in the wrong state. Hails from Connecticut. It's over in the other direction. And he is a formal former Ralph Lauren vice president. He discovered the plant-based way of life through the work of Dr. Campbell, Dr. Esselstyn, and others. He wrote Healthy Eating, Healthy World. Did I say that right? Or Healthy That's Eating, right. Healthy healthy Eating, Healthy World. That's right. Um, and he has now joined with Dr. Carrie Graff. She's a medical doctor, a Cornell University summa cum laude graduate in biology, University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and she is a family practitioner in upstate New York. It was watching Forks Over Knives in 2013 when she adopted a whole food plant-based diet and experienced huge improvements in her own health. She took the T. Colin Campbell plant-based nutrition course, as many of us had, a great course, highly recommend it, and began using the Four Leaf Program as an integral part of her practice to help patients transition to a healthy, healthier diet. And she says, and these are doctor words, and you know doctors don't often use use superlatives, that the results have been absolutely amazing. Welcome, Jim and Carrie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, thank you both very much. Whenever there are two guests, we sometimes have some of those awkward silences, so I will try to be very clear and say, Jim... Dr. Graff, so we know what we're talking about. But on the other hand, please make this a conversation. And if we all jump in at the same time, then we will just sound like pundits on the political stations. So, (laughs) Jim, let's start with you. How did the two of you together, and you can both certainly answer this, become so passionate about plant-based eating? You don't just do it. You are excited about it. Where did the excitement come from? Well, for me, it just kind of gradually grew. I, I, I just kind of got got curious back in 2002 about the optimal diet for humans. And the more I read, the more I learned, and the, the angrier I got about the fact that none of this information was being taught anywhere in med- medical schools or nutritional schools or grade schools or anywhere. Doctors didn't learn it. And... Um, the more I, I got into it, I first saw myself as a consultant working with corporations to help them reduce the cost of health care, but one thing led to another, and I wrote the first book and thought I would never write another one until I met Carrie Graff, and and she can I think she convinced me or inspired me to uh, be part of that project. So, Carrie, why don't you jump in there? Well, I just want to laugh, Jim, because I don't think I had to twist your arm too hard. Like, we barely mentioned it, and you kind of jumped right on and said, we have to write this book, and I think you started the next week, or at least you started thinking about what was going in it. But um, So for me, the big transition happened. I watched Forks Over Knives a couple of years ago now, and I have to be honest, when I watched it, I, I, wanted, I wanted Drs. Campbell and, and Dr. Esselstyn to be complete quacks. Because if what they were saying in this movie were really true, then everything that I had been doing was just wrong. The whole way I practiced medicine, the whole way I had been trained, everything was wrong. Because we didn't pay any attention to what people were, were eating. Uh, you know, we might think it matters a little bit. But we, we treat it like it matters a tiny bit, whereas what we do in terms of prescribing medications and procedures matters a heck of a lot. 
And in particular, uh, what came out in the Forks Over Knives movie about the impact of dairy uh, negatively on our diets was really upsetting to me because I just spent the last 18 years telling everybody to make sure you get your three servings of dairy in a day like I'd been taught to tell people. So, you know, coming out of that movie, first of all, I really needed to know what was uh, what the truth was uh, about what we were telling our patients, what we should be telling our patients. And so I kind of went on this mini rampage looking out there for, you know, you know all the data kind of, are these guys quacks? Are they legitimate? You know, where's the data for all of this? And, and I came from, away from it deciding that, you know, not only are they legitimate, they're amazing pioneers and, um, you know, I adopted the diet myself. And, and having experienced it myself, how much health, healthier I got when I went on to eating that way, um, I didn't specifically start bringing it up with patients. Basically, they, they saw me, you know, I looked a lot healthier. I'd lost 25 pounds. And I'd say, well, I'm eating a really healthy diet. I washed forks over knives. Maybe you want to check it out. And that's kind of how it started. Um, and then when I was looking for more materials to to work with patients, to be able to kind of help them transition, like I would have people that come back in and they'd have watched forks over knives and they'd say, wow, okay, I get it. My diet's really killing me, and I really need to change it, but what, how, what do I do? What do I eat? And um, they really needed a better a better structure for kind of figuring out where they were now and where they needed to get to. And when I was looking for a way of doing that, I, I found uh, Jim's four-leaf stuff online and contacted him about uh, asking if I could use it, which he graciously gave me permission to use them, and the rest is history. Aha. Uh-huh. I want to ask you, Carrie, about a story that you tell early in the book about a patient and advice that you gave her that you came to regret. Well, um, yeah, about the sun, I think. So uh, this was really before the whole transformation for kind of eating happened for me. It was a couple of years before that. Um, So the story is it was an elderly patient that came into my office. And she was really, really depressed. She was just so shut down, barely responding. You know, she'd cry, but she was just, you know, she had, there's no life left in her. She was just really shut down. And uh, her husband had died a little bit before, and I, I was thinking it was related to that. But it turned out that what was really going on was that her, her son, you know, who's a grown man, he's in his 50s, was living with her, and he was an alcoholic. Um, and he would work a few hours a week, but he spent all of his money on his alcohol and, in the meantime, she was supporting him, and she was buying the food and cooking and taking care of everything. And and then uh, he would get drunk, and he would beat her up. So um, she was already in with the counselor. She was seeing a counselor, and they had, uh, by the time this was coming to my attention, uh, the counselor had already had a family meeting. So it was already planning a family meeting with all of the all of the kids coming in to kind of get this into a safe situation. And but the the patient of mine was so so depressed and so she was really anxious as well. But I started her on some medication um, to help with the depression and for the anxiety. So I saw her back a couple of weeks later, and she looked amazingly better. You know, she was just she was just so much less anxious, and she was a lot brighter. And I was, you know, asking how did the family meeting go, and yet yeah, the family meeting went off like it was expected, and the, the son had been taken out of the house, and she was now safe. But what she told me was that, you know, she's feeling so much better from the medications I gave her that now she thinks she can handle him getting drunk and aggressive, and she's let him back in. And it was a moment of real awakening for me to realize that so much of what we do in medicine is people coming in with these symptoms from things that are, are wrong in their lives. And instead of fixing what's wrong in their life, we just throw a Band-Aid on it with a medication. Um, and it made me think really differently about what I do. It took me a while to translate that into what we eat, but at least that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to, um, you know, there, there, there certainly are times when treating with medication is the most appropriate thing to do, but we, we can't lose sight of, of why somebody is seeking help in the first place and what, what caused that problem in the first place. And if, if it is all, at all possible, we should be addressing that and not the symptoms. That's a very powerful story. We do have a caller. Caller, are you on the line? Nope. Okay. Um, we'll move on to that caller in a little bit. But I want to talk about this four-leaf program. I know it's a book. I know there's a Facebook page, facebook.com slash four-leaf program, and the four is... Uh, a numeral, 
and there's no space or, or no hyphen, just four leaf program. That's all good. And that's something, Jim, that you came up with in your previous book, but you all have really enlarged it in this project. So what's the four leaf plan? I would say about seven or eight years ago, I, I got to thinking there needed to be a better way to describe the optimal diet rather than vegan or vegetarian, which which actually are words that turn off a lot of people. And I heard I, I, I heard a definition that Dr. Campbell used, and once I heard it, I said, that's it. That's the definition of an optimal diet when he simply stated, the closer we come to eating a diet of whole plant-based foods, the better off we will be. Now, he didn't say you had to be 100% raw vegan. He just said the closer we get. And so I said, well, we should come up with a simple little scale and have several levels. And it started out, it was going to be like the Olympic rings, gold medal, silver medal, bronze, you know, that kind of a thing. But then I uh, ultimately settled on the four leaf uh, for various reasons. It's appealing. It looks good. It, it reminds people of good luck. And it gave me four levels. And then I added the, the fifth level was basically the standard American diet, which is people getting less than 10% of their calories from those whole plant-based foods. But then I added a sixth level, and I caught because so many of the people took our survey and scored at the lowest level, I got tired of giving everybody this horrible news. So I added the sixth level under, it's between the one-leaf level and the uh, unhealthful diet level. It's called the better-than-most level. And it's better than most. It's 10 to 20% of one's calories from whole plant-based food, which is, you know, three or four times as many calories as the average person gets. So it is better than most. And one thing led to another, you know, I finally created the survey after just sort of thinking about it for a long time and then gradually adjusting the algorithm after giving the survey a few thousand times. And, and then when Carrie found it online and asked me if she could use it in her practice, I was overjoyed uh, because I had been producing this information. Uh, I did cover it a little bit in the first book, but I hadn't really, uh, it really wasn't being used anywhere. My son had used it in his personal training business some, but, but Carrie, I, I say it's like, uh, it's like uh, I planted the seed and, and now she's brought the plant to life here with with the, her use of it in, in the clinical environment. And that's what we're both working on now. The book that was published one week ago today, and we are now beginning the process of trying to plant the seeds in the minds of, of all of the people currently p- practicing the plant-based way of, of eating, all the doctors, I should say, doctors and other medical professionals, and, and kind of grow it that way to get, get the word out, get people using it, and uh, gradually move on from there. But um, it, it was Carrie's practice that really um, proved to me that there was a real need for a tool like this. We, we think the survey is really the heart of this whole thing because it gets the patient engaged. The patient knows exactly where they lost points and how many points they lost and, and can... Um, know exactly what what they need to do to to improve their diet well i think it's brilliant and it's also very non-punitive it's it's self-administered it, it it's self-curated and it just makes people feel better about themselves instead of the other way around i do want to play devil's advocate here for a minute when you talked about that vegetarian and vegan turn people off <laughs> i want to come from the other point of view on that Because having been around this for so long, back when vegan was the word that we had and the one that, you know, we've been trying to educate people about since 1944, I remember in in 1990, I think it was Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine came up with what they called the the vegan four food groups. That was back when we were still having the four, basic four, And, and it was fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, which is pretty much what you guys are talking about now. And that was a whole foods vegan diet. And I think that's so clear because I don't really think people know what 
plant-based mean? I mean, I've heard paleo people say that they're plant-based. I have a friend who very proudly says, I love my plant-based diet. It's 60% plants, 20% animal, 20% processed. Works just great. And and it probably does uh, in, in an individual life. But with the planet and everything else going on, what's so wrong with the V word? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, first of all, I, don't, I do not think the V word describes what is necessarily an optimal diet because, after all, one could eat nothing but Diet Coke and potato chips and call themselves a vegan. It, it's all about, it seems to me it's all about more about what you don't eat. I know Neil Barnard came up with those four groups, but just the term vegan uh, I, I think is misunderstood, and we wanted something that was, very clear, descriptive, and focused on the positives, focused on what you are eating, not defined by what you are not eating. And so, you know, I I, uh, I love, I, I guess I would have to say I'm vegan because I, I eat no, no animal-based foods, but occasionally I might eat one, eat some by mistake. And so I just don't, don't like to be too too rigid in, in the definition, and I would prefer to get, you know, uh, 90% of the people to move halfway to a whole food plant-based diet than get 10% of the people to move all the way. We can get a lot more done for the environment by getting bigger numbers behind it, and four-leaf implies wiggle room that you can choose your own level, and that, that that's kind of the thought process. I but, get it. Uh, I will say that most most of my members, most of the people that follow me on Twitter or my blog account or whatever are, are vegan or self-described vegan. So yeah. that's where well, it starts, and it's the vegans and the vegetarians of the world that's going to help take this to the next level. I, I think we're doing it, and thanks so much for explaining that, because I do know that today, unlike when I went vegan back in 1983, there are vegan junk foods in the world. I mean, I guess we had Diet Coke and potato mm-hmm. chips in 1983, but nobody interested in doing this was eating anything that junky. But now there are things that show up in health food stores that have no animal ingredients, maybe aren't quite so healthy, that, that still count as vegan. In fact, we had a story today, and I did ask my lovely assistant, Danielle, for permission to tell this, so I'm not speaking out of school. But Danielle is roommates with the owner of Dunwell Donuts, which is a donut shop in, in Brooklyn that supposedly has the most wonderful and delicious donuts, which happen to have no animal products in them. I don't know. I've never have had one. Not that I would not allow one into my wiggle room area. It's just that I never liked donuts back when I ate everything on earth. And so that's just not something that I feel like eating now. But Danielle was going to bring some donuts today for the graduating class of Main Street Vegan Academy. And she asked if that would be okay. And I said, no. No, really, no, simply because we've had people here for a week with wonderful classes. We had Dr. Robert Ostfeld, I know a, a friend of, of yours, the cardiologist. We had our wonderful dietitian, Marty Davey, talking about nutrition. I'd done a class on Ayurveda. We'd visited a raw food market. So we had all this health going in, and it's like, you know, I just think donuts on the last day wouldn't quite be the right message, although I suppose there is a place for everything and everything in its place. And right now it's time for a break and we will come back and find out more about this fabulous program, this delightful book and the brilliant people who have put it together. Stay with us. Somewhere. Tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a 100 years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. 
Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. I am talking to Jay Morris Hicks and Dr. Carrie Graff. They are the authors of just the most charming book. And I know that really isn't maybe the word you would expect to hear for a book about health, but it is so readable. And, and these little short chapters are just so appealing that you want to go on to the next and the next and the next. The website is fourleafprogram.com. Like a Four Leaf Clover, that four is a numeral. And you can take the Four Leaf Survey at fourleafsurvey.com. Which brings me to my first question. How does the Four Leaf Survey work? Dr. Graff, well, you want to take that? You can quiet. Okay. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I'll be quiet for this one. Since, since Jim developed it, he gets to speak on this one. Okay. Well, you know... Um, I was inspired by an, another person that I heard give a lecture, and he had like a 10-question a survey. It was yes or no, and he said he could determine how healthy your diet was from those answers. So I took that and tried to do a 10-question one yes or no, and that didn't work. And so I, I started playing around with multiple choice. I wanted to cover all the categories. I wanted to make sure I had a way of measuring. And I just, being an engineer by training, I just played with the numbers and kept kept working on it until I, I began to have an algorithm, that's a method of computation, coming together where I gave positive points for all of the good things, the whole plants that you were eating, and basically negative points for just about everything else. So if you score with a net zero, you're right at the one-leaf level, which means you're getting between 20 and 40% of your calories from whole plants, which is like five to ten times more whole plants than the average person gets. So you say, well, how can that possibly compute to that? Well, it doesn't compute. It basically gives us enough information so that we can estimate those uh, percentages. And I remember when Carrie asked me when we first had our discussion um, over a year ago, about the survey, her use of it, she said that she actually didn't understand how it worked. And I said, well, you don't understand. I don't understand how it works either, but it does. It, it was just developed through trial and error. And then Carrie admitted that she did count her calories for a few days. And, and she said, damn, if it doesn't work, you know, it was, um, it, it's just a tool um, and it helps get get people thinking in the right in the right way about food and reinforcing the the the, the consumption of, of the healthiest of foods. And now that we have it up and running, we have a daily version and a and a um, regular version that basically talks about your habits. The daily version talks about addresses what you are eating on any particular day. And so it's now in the format that can be easily shared it can be taken in one one to two minutes online. Uh, the person taking it can get a one of six custom reports based on their their level, which explains how they could improve their score and where they're currently eating now. So uh, that's that's kind of the origin, and maybe Carrie can add to that. Well, I just Carrie? wanted to say that you know most most patients when they come in. And they're taking it for the first time. And, and they, you know, most people come in thinking, oh, yeah, I'm eating a fairly healthy diet, right? So they'll, they'll score probably in the better than most category. They're getting, you know, somewhere around 10, 15% of their calories from whole plant foods. 
And what we'll say, what I'll say to them is, well, you scored better than 65% of the of everyone around you, but you're you're getting 10 to 15, 10 to 20% of your calories from whole plant foods when the healthy folks are getting 80% or more. So you've you got to increase it a lot to get yourself in the healthiest category. And when you kind of think of it in those terms, people kind of realize how far off that optimal diet they've really gone. Well, that um, is one so of the reasons. For me, it's... Go ahead. Go ahead, Victoria. No, I was just going to say uh, that's I was just why it's say, so it, helpful. It's just so... Yeah, it's also so helpful because if you're doing it uh, on the on a written out version, you can see how you scored for each of the questions, and then you kind of say, "Look, I need to be eating at least three to five, you know, servings of fruit every day, and three to five servings of vegetables every day, and three to five servings of whole beans, potatoes, or whole whole grains, beans or potatoes every day to really be getting." all of the calories that I need from whole plants. And then I need to be eating very little of the rest of the stuff on there, which is the sugars and any of the animal products. It, um, it's not just about uh, avoiding all animal foods. It is that, but it's also making sure you're getting things in their original form, their whole form, as much as you possibly can and not eating the processed stuff that's everywhere now. So true. Now, you mentioned fruit and you mentioned potatoes. And as we all know, there are a whole lot of people out there on Dr. Oz and in the women's magazines and everywhere saying, fruit, potatoes, it's sugar, you will die. So how do you as a physician deal with this idea that a sugar cube and a bowl of brown rice are not the same thing? Basically what I say is, you know, we've, uh, human beings have been around 200,000 years, and we're really used to eating fruits and vegetables, and our bodies know what to do with those. But all of the stuff that comes in a package that's full of sugar that, you know, has been manufactured by man in the last 100 years, our bodies don't know what to do with that. And if you, you know, you, if you could also say, um, you know, if you look at the healthiest people on the planet, the folks that live the longest with the lowest incidence of, of disease, those folks are eating lots of fruit. Lots of whole vegetables. Most of them are eating potatoes, so um, or other other things like whole grains. Those things that we kind of worry about as being starches. The healthiest folks on the planet eat a lot of starch. They do. So um, sometimes that works. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. I've got folks that you can't budge. Um, but one of the things you can say is, well, you've got you've got high cholesterol and you've got diabetes and you've got hypertension. So what you're doing now isn't working that well. So maybe we could try changing something. And sometimes that will open people's eyes to being a little bit more um, amenable to making a difference. I'm I'm sure. So you are a physician. And Jim, you've given me a very interesting question here to ask you. And that is, how do doctors make money if everybody gets healthy? (laughs) Well, uh, that question is probably best answered by Carrie because she's the one, one one of our endorsers of the book. Uh, Ted Barnett is a friend of Carrie's, and he's a physician also, and he uh, he works in with cardiac patients, and he works on uh, installing stents and things like that. And he he said in, in his endorsement in the front of the book, if everyone ate this kind of diet, I would be out of a job. Thank goodness I have plenty of hobbies. So um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, the, the funny thing about Ted Barnett is I, I met Ted when I moved to Canandaigua 18 years ago, and Ted has been a vegan for 21, 22 years. And he tried to convince me to go vegan back then, and I did not pay one bit of attention to him. And I feel so bad now that I could have been on this on this plan a lot long a long time ago and gotten people healthier a lot long longer ago. But you know, sometimes it just takes us a, a while to wake up to reality. So, um, but it is you know our whole our whole medical system. Go ahead, Jim. No, I didn't answer the. I didn't comment on on really the crux of the question was how do you make a living, and I think mm-hmm. Carrie is in the process of learning that right now as she's doing different things with her time. She didn't spend time on radio shows, you know, five years ago, and yet she's finding other ways of of making a living doing what she is passionate about. And I'll let you share, Carrie better comment on, on those sorts of things, I think. 
You want well, to? you know, right when you're starting, but lots of folks that are, are in process, so they need a lot of help with making the transition. And once they get healthy, they don't need me anymore. But, um, but we certainly don't have a, a lack of unhealthy people in the population. So, um, And a surprising number of them are really ready to make some substantial changes if they're given good guidance. Um, you know, some of them are not going to change anything that they're going to do. That's definitely true. But um, but a lot of them will. A lot of them really want to do better with their diet, but there's, they just don't know what to do because they've been thrown so much conflicting information. Um, so it is um, it is a bit difficult. What I'm running into here, uh, I run a class at my local hospital, Thompson Health, UR Thompson, and um, it's about transitioning people to this way of eating over the course of six weeks. But um, as people hear about that class and they hear about what I'm doing with my patients, they want to see me in consultation, but I can't see another primary care doc's patients in consultation um, just because of the way the reimbursement works in insurance companies. So things are, are changing uh, in that we're getting a new specialty called lifestyle medicine, um, and it's basically a subspecialty that... Uh, works specifically with lifestyle and getting people healthy. Um, it's not recognized yet by insurance companies, but I think in the next couple of years it will be. And when that ha- when that happens, it will be a, a subspecialty that we can then um, see patients in the general population and be able to get reimbursed for that. There's a fair amount of um, medical supervision that, especially if you're diabetic and going from the standard American diet or even from the American Diabetes Association diet, to a whole food plant-based diet, that you need to have some medical supervision. Um, I'll give you an example of of this. One of the very first patients, right after I I learned about this diet, I had a patient who came in, and she was um, over 300 pounds. Uh, She's a type 2 diabetic, which is the kind that you get when you get older, but she was insulin-dependent because her diabetes was so bad. And um, I had sent her off to an endocrinologist a number of years ago um, because she had been so difficult to control. Um, and I, I had told her that I just, you know, heard about this diet and about some amazing improvements in sugar control with going to a plant-based whole food diet versus the American Diabetes Association diet and asked her if she'd try it, which she was absolutely thrilled to because she was really frustrated with, with the care that she'd been getting, which is the standard care. Basically, you go on insulin, your sugars get better for a little bit, but you become more insulin resistant as you gain more weight, which you gain weight because of the insulin, and then you end up having to increase the insulin some more. And it's like this never-ending cycle of needing more and more insulin to keep your sugars under control. And as you're needing more and more insulin, you're gaining more and more weight. And that was the, the, the cycle that she was on, and she was just you know, beside herself when she came in. But in that, that first month that she went to eating this way, and, and she, she figured it out really fast. You know, most people, they transition over a course of a couple of weeks, but she transitioned really quickly. The very first week, she dropped her blood pressure 40 points, and we had to back off our blood pressure medicine because she was dizzy. We had to drop her blood pressure again at the end of the month because she dropped her blood, her blood pressure was still down 40 points. Um, and at the end of one month, she had dropped her insulin requirements by 50%. She was on over 100 units of insulin. She got over half of that in one month. If she had been continued on that same dose, she would have died because she would have been profoundly hypoglycemic. So... Uh, it's certainly um, not a reason not to go on this diet. I would encourage everybody to go on this way of eating because it's, it's so incredibly healthy for you. But if you're on medications specifically, if you're on diabetic medications and blood pressure medicines, you need to have some supervision and somebody working with you to adjust your meds. Oh, how wonderful that this new specialty is happening. How wonderful that you're out there and that people can read your wonderful book, can go to fourleafprogram.com can go to fourleafsurvey.com and get on board with this. I just love you both so much. And Carrie, I've never even met you, but I love you anyway. And thank you so much for spending this time with us. It went very, very quickly. And for anybody who was expecting um, uh, Gary Francione, he did have a family emergency. He will be on November 4th. Mark your calendars. Thank you so much for being with us today, guests and listeners, Unity Online Radio, for being behind Main Street Vegan. It means the world to everybody listening, whenever you're listening and wherever you are. God bless you and eat your veggies. Till next week. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. 
This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.